Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the birth of your son. We thank you for the hope that it gave the world, that light was born into the darkness of this world. We finally had hope. We finally had peace. We finally have joy. Lord, I, I, I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't accepted that yet, that they would do so today. They would be restored to you and have a fullness of a relationship with you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A favorite tool I've observed that movie directors like to utilize is that of the art of bringing the main character through an edge-of-your-seat chase or escape or adventure and leading the audience to believe that it's all over. Uh, Phew, the main character got through that. Only to have the main character fall into more or less a continuation of that chase or another escape or adventure. You're sitting there, you watch that, and you think, wow, that was close, and then something else happens. He automatically gets thrown into another chase or escape. And our friend Joseph, whom we've already talked about a couple of weeks ago, has already been through a lot at this point. He's already had to obey God by taking his already pregnant betrothed to be his wife. He's already had to travel all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem with a very pregnant wife. And he's already witnessed the birth of the Son of God, complete with a visit by shepherds. You would think he was thinking at this point, all right, I'm glad this is all over. That was, uh, that was enough for me. I'm good. But then all of a sudden, we see God command Joseph to obey him with something else, something new yet again. And so the first point that we have in our passage this morning is the command to escape. The command to escape. Within the context of the overall birth account of Christ, Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem, having given birth to Jesus. Because the road back to Nazareth would have been somewhat dangerous, they have a baby, and there apparently was no rush to get back to Nazareth. Mary and Joseph probably stay with Bethlehem for a couple of years. In fact, as you've heard me mention before in the past, when you read the account of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, in the Greek, about him being placed in a manger, it was because there was no room for them in the kataluma in the Greek. Most biblical scholars agree that it's best translated guest room, not necessarily in. In fact, Luke uses the Greek word for in, a different word, in Luke 10.34 to refer to the Good Samaritan putting up the injured Jewish man in an inn. It outright uses the word translated in, and it's a different word. So what most likely happened was when, when we, like we talked about last week, Joseph went to Bethlehem to register himself as a descendant in the line of David, and also most likely went there to register land that he owned with the Roman authorities. Because he did that, he didn't plan a haphazard journey. Joseph was no fool. Joseph knew he had family in Bethlehem, and so probably made plans with them to stay with them in their kataluma, in their guest room. When he ended up getting there, though, he finds out that a bunch of other family members, guess what, had the same exact idea. If they were especially elderly family members already taking up the guest room in an already packed house, 
The only place for Joseph and Mary would have been the family stable. Now at this time and place, most homes had an attached or tuck-under stable, much like many people have an attached or tuck-under garage today. It's where they would park their vehicles, their animals they they would ride. So it would, have, it would have at least provided some shelter, provided some privacy for Mary, and most importantly to the biblical count, included at least one what? Manger. That's all it needed to include, was a manger. That's all it says in Scripture, that he was laid in a manger. As with any family in Judea at that time, there were most likely some family members and perhaps a midwife to help with Mary's delivery. So I'm sorry to burst anyone's bubble here that, uh, about the image of Joseph and Mary being completely alone, abandoned with no, help, no one to help, and Joseph helping to deliver Jesus on his own. There was most likely family around and maybe even a midwife. Anyway, this understanding better helps us see that by the time the Magi arrived from the area of Persia, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are in a house then. That's what we read in Matthew. It was most likely that family's house after everyone else had cleared out and the guest room opened up. Mary needed to recover from having just given birth and there was no reason to rush back to Bethlehem. They also needed time to go offer their required sacrifices like we talked about a few minutes ago, both for Mary and for Jesus at the temple, also recorded for us in Luke 2 where they meet the prophets Anna and Simeon. Following those sacrifices and offerings, pagan astrologers from the east called Magi follow a star to see this foretold Messiah, let King Herod know about the birth of the Jewish king, and return home without telling him that they found Jesus because they were warned in a dream not to tell him. And that's what brings us to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn there. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. Matthew chapter 2, first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. So we read in verse 12 that it's the Magi. Magi left for their own country by another way without telling Herod. So now verse 13. When they had gone, meaning the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. God knows everything, right? God knows everything and he allows what he wants to allow to happen. He knows that King Herod will grow furious, that the Magi have fooled him, and God knows that Herod is already paranoid about his rule and will seek to keep it safe no matter what, no matter how high the price He knows that Herod will discover that the Magi left without giving him the location, without giving him what he wanted, and take his anger out by killing all the baby boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem. So keeping his son, God in the flesh, safe in the world he was just born into, God commands Joseph through one of his messengers to escape Bethlehem and go to Egypt. Now, Egypt at this point had a couple of large Jewish communities, one in northern Egypt in the city of Alexandria and one farther south in the city called Elephantine. 
Joseph and Mary probably would have shot for one or the other. While the Nile River in Egypt would have, been, would have provided easy access within Egypt, getting there was another matter. The main route south first had to pass through Jerusalem. And since that's the last place Joseph wanted to go, since Joseph would obviously have to avoid going anywhere near Jerusalem, he would have had to take the rougher road through the town of Hebron. Now that's a challenge in and of itself. You still have a young child with you. So just as God called Joseph to go above and beyond conventional human wisdom with his relationship to his pregnant betrothed, God calls Joseph to go above and beyond simply living and sends him on a refugee escape down a rough path to a foreign country. How many men here would like to do that right after their first child is born? I don't think anybody would want to do that. That's a really tough command, isn't it? See, we read this year after year after year, and we don't stop and think about how tough that would have been, how challenging that would have been. You just had a baby, your first baby, and on top of everything, you know you're going to have to experience the rest of your life in raising who you know to be the Messiah. You now have to pack up everything, leave any connection to family, and not just go to another place, but a whole other country. It wasn't just another town in Israel. He had to go to a whole other country. Even though Joseph still would have probably aimed for one of those Jewish communities in Egypt, it was still another country with its own laws, its own rules, and its own discrimination. Now Joseph could have said, God, haven't I done enough? I've done enough already for you. Can't you live with everything I've already sacrificed for you? We'll go back to Nazareth. He's not going to find us there. It's a little town out, out, well outside of, of his purview. He doesn't know we're there. We'll just go back to Nazareth because that's what I think is best for us. How many times do we think that and say that to God? I'm going to do this because I think that's what's best for us. What is Joseph's response? Verse 14. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. We see here another response of complete obedience. Joseph takes Mary and Jesus and uses the cover of darkness to lessen the odds of getting caught by the authorities. And we have to ask ourselves the question, if God called me to do something similar, what would my response be? What mentality do I need to give up in order to be completely surrendered to God? Lastly, in this first section, we come to verse 15. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, at first glance, this just seems to be another clear fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. But if you go back and look up what this verse is actually quoting, you have to go to Hosea 11.1, where it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. So who's the original reference here? Israel, right? Thank you, Sonia. The The nation of Israel. Israel. We can see here that Hosea's original reference is to the entire nation of Israel and not a prophesied individual Messiah. 
However, Matthew says that, what does he say? He says, this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. He's hinting at that since God is the one ultimately responsible for what is written in Scripture, he could have had a much deeper meaning behind the word son. Because when Hosea was prophesying, was, was that right around the time of the Exodus? No. <laughs> it was hundreds of years later, right? And so he's both talking about what happened in the past and that since God is ultimately the one who gave these words to the prophet Hosea, God had something much deeper behind that word son. In this sense, as with other Old Testament messianic passages, the Messiah is connected with his people. The Messiah is connected with the nation of Israel. Since the Messiah is both identified with and is the fulfillment of Israel, he spiritually fulfills even this connection. That just as Israel was called out of Egypt back in the book of Exodus, the Messiah had to fulfill this representation as well. And in that way, he fulfilled every single identification with his people. Jesus, as the Messiah, truly fulfilled every identification he had with Israel and being the perfect fulfillment of Israel. There could be no accusations that Jesus did not fulfill every identification with the nation of Israel. The second point we have is the command to return. Some time passes. Herod tragically carries out his heinous act of slaughter, and he finally dies around the year 4 B.C. And that's what brings us to verses 19 through 20. So we're skipping a few verses. We're coming up to verses 19 through 20. And we read, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Just as he says in verse 13, the messenger from God says to Joseph, Get up and take the child and his mother and go. Again, in verse 13, it was to go to Egypt. In verse 20, with basically the same exact words, it's to go back to the land of Israel. God tells Joseph that it's now safe to go back because Herod the Great is dead. Just as it was nationally important for God to bring his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, or Israel, it is nationally important for his people's Messiah to do the same. Perhaps Joseph had started a little carpentry business in Egypt. Perhaps he was just finding temporary work. But once again, he obeys God's command in verse 21. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Even though Joseph knew from his previous dream that his sojourn in Egypt would be temporary, he didn't know for how long it would be. He didn't know how much longer Herod was going to live. He didn't know how long he was going to have to be in Egypt. But here, in God's perfect timing, he again packs up his family and all his earthly belongings and goes to where God tells him to go to. And in verse 22 we read, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. It's very interesting how yet again, 
The writer of this, Dr. Luke, ties his narrative in with the contextual historical situations going on at the time. So like we talked about last week, there are no historical discrepancies, and we can actually see a clear connection to world history. We know from world history that King Herod died around 4 BC, and his kingdom was divided up into a tetrarchy. It was divided up into three different kingdoms. A three-king rule with three of his sons taking a territory within his former kingdom. Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip II, his three sons taking over one of these three different territories. Now Archelaus, that we read about just now, he was a terrible ruler. Terrible. He had an unstable reign and ended up being deposed by the Romans in 6 AD and banished to the region known as France today. Luke tells us that Archelaus was the ruler over the region where Bethlehem was, and therefore Bethlehem would have still been a dangerous place to live under Archelaus. And because of that, God warns Joseph not to settle back in Bethlehem, but to go back to Galilee, which was not in Archelaus's territory, it was in the region being ruled by his brother Antipas at the time, a much more stable ruler. A very interesting tidbit of history, after Archelaus was banished from his rule in 6 AD, the region that included Judea, so Jerusalem, Bethlehem, everything in that area, came under direct Roman rule. Instead of having any kind of a pawn king, the Romans said, We're done with that. We've been there, done that with Herod. We've been there, done that with Archelaus. We're going to have direct rule over Jerusalem, Judea, that entire area of Judea. It was consolidated into a region named Syria, and an ambitious Roman named Publius Supplicius Quirinius was placed as governor over it. And we've seen that name before, Quirinius, in Luke chapter 2. One of his first tasks as governor was to take a census of Syria. The famous census that Luke references both in Acts chapter 5 verse 37 and in Luke 2.2, which we discussed last week. Apparently, the lesser known census, the one that Herod started, which Joseph followed around 5 to 4 BC, wasn't fully carried out or not done well enough by Herod for Caesar Augustus's taste, and so he then made Quirinius do it again in 6 AD. Getting back to, to Joseph settling in Archelaus's brothers Antipas's territory of Galilee, though, we read more specifically the town in Galilee that Joseph was to settle in, in verse 23, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now there are some discrepancy regarding what Matthew is referring to here, mostly because uh, there's no direct quote to any particular prophet here. What Matthew may be referring to here when he says that Jesus fulfills prophecy by being from Nazareth may be in making a play on words of the word netzer, meaning branch, and a fulfillment of Isaiah 11.1 with the Greek version of Nazareth, Nazareth. They look very similar, Netzer and Nazareth. 
We referenced this on Christmas Eve this past week, but Isaiah 11, 1, we read, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, a, a, a branch. Yes, a new branch, or netzer, bearing fruit from the old root. And in that way, Matthew is connecting Jesus being from Nazareth to being this new branch bearing fruit from the old root of David's family. In addition, what Matthew could have also very well meant, as we learned from one of Jesus' disciples, was that people from Nazareth were generally despised. One of his disciples, when he found out that Jesus was Messiah, said, get out of here. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Nobody likes anybody from Nazareth. And so... Everybody from Nazareth was generally despised by everyone else in Judea. So Matthew could have been alluding to the Old Testament prophecies in general that said that the Messiah would be someone who was despised. We read that time and time again in the Old Testament prophecies. So Joseph, Mary, and Jesus settled back in Joseph and Mary's hometown, a town called Nazareth. That's where we begin the story of Jesus' birth. And that's where we end the story of Jesus' birth. The angel Gabriel visiting Mary in Nazareth, telling her she's going to have a baby, not just any baby, but the Son of God. And here we are, ending back up in Nazareth. Joseph may not have even wanted to go back to Nazareth. Did we ever think about that? God had to tell him to go back to Nazareth. Why? Because Joseph knew the rumors He knew the gossip of everyone who still would have been living there, knew both of him and Mary, knew about Mary's pregnancy out of wedlock, and that crazy story she had that an angel told her the Holy Spirit would overshadow her, and that's how she would become pregnant. But Joseph went back anyway. He picked up his carpentry business and continued to raise Jesus, the Son of God, as his own as well as raise the other children he would have with Mary. Joseph lived his entire life based on God's commands. Was Joseph perfect? No, of course not. He was a human being just like any one of us. But he, he tried to live as best as he could his entire life on God's commands, on obeying those. Not only was he described as righteous, meaning that he strove to follow the instruction God had given to his people, but he obeyed the individual commands that God gave to him. He didn't sit around and think about it. Time and time again, what did we read? He obeyed immediately, didn't he? He sacrificed his personal well-being, his personal happiness, for the sake of God's grander plan. He knew who he was providing for and protecting and lived his life in service to doing what God wanted him to do for his family. For the first part of Joseph's marriage, he endured the cultural derision of aligning himself with a woman being pregnant out of wedlock. He obeyed immediately God's command to leave Bethlehem and embark on an uncomfortable and difficult journey, lived in a foreign country until God told him it was okay to return to Israel, and then left that foreign country when God told him to. While Joseph was still only a man and not perfect, we see that he was a man that did not question God. When God said, go, he went. When God said, do, he did. 
Let us also be a people who obey God without question. We don't sit around and think about it. We don't, we don't weigh the pros and cons. If we know what God wants us to do, we just do it. We obey God immediately. We don't give it any further thought. Let us also obey God without wavering. As we look towards starting a new year and a new decade this week, let it be a new year, truly, and a new decade. One that's changed in our lives. Let it be a new and changed year and decade in both our individual and collective resolutions to obey and trust God immediately and without wavering. Let us live lives based on furthering God's kingdom and not our own. Let us trust in His faithfulness as we seek to do the work that He has for us in this new year and beyond that our lives may show what God is doing in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time that You've given to us. We thank You for Your Word. I pray that they were words of encouragement. I pray that they were words of power. That if there's anything that we know that You are calling us to do, I pray that we would stop thinking about it and just obey You. Follow through with it. Do what we know You want us to do. And as we look towards this new year, Lord, I pray that we would do the work that You have for us to do without wavering obeying immediately and trusting you with the results and anything that will come out of anything in this life. Let us truly seek your kingdom above all else, knowing that you will provide exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. Let us rest in that peace. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.